0: Happy Tuesday, everyone. Thank you for being here. I hope that you had a wonderful Halloween. Uh, last week, I talked about how I was really, really looking forward to living in a new neighborhood that had lots of kids because I love handing out candy on Halloween, and uh, most years, I just haven't been able to do that. And uh, <laughs> I'm kind of a hypocrite. We had lots of kids. It was really great. And then, like, I'm getting old or something because it hit eight o'clock, and uh, once Daisy was in bed and wasn't running up to the door with me to open the door and give people candy. It just, like, wasn't fun anymore. <laughs> so I was that guy that totally uh, turned off my lights at, like, 8 o'clock. So, yeah, I know. I deserve it. I deserve a boo. That's fine. Uh, I, before we get into the talk tonight, I wanted to give you an update on uh, Project Worthmore, um, the collection that we did uh, all of October to... Um, collect items for care baskets for refugees coming from Afghanistan. Uh, Thank you. Due to your generosity, we were able to collect 128 things, which I, uh, this week, am lugging down to Project Worthmore if everything goes as planned. Um, And they're going to be able to use that to, to make dozens of care baskets. So thank you for that. Um, we are going to this month participate in a toy drive for refugee children to give them Christmas gifts. And I am going to get more information about that to you, uh, before next Tuesday so that you can bring something with you next Tuesday. But I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited about how our last, how this past one went. Um, and I'm excited to, to make some more, uh, I don't know to, to to extend grace to more people who are coming here in a, in a bad situation. Uh, in my mind, it sounds like a really great idea to, to help these people have some semblance of uh, celebration and goodness and happiness, and uh, letting their kids open some presents on Christmas is one way to do that. so uh, tonight like I said, we're going to be looking at one of the most famous scenes from the book of Exodus, the parting and crossing of the Red Sea. And through this story, uh, hopefully what we'll see is that God saves through recreating, and he invites us to actively participate in that. God saves through recreating and invites us to actively participate. Uh, We took a break from Exodus last week, so uh, if you remember from two weeks ago where we stopped was... uh, the 10 plagues have come, the 10th plague has happened, and Pharaoh finally is willing to let the people go, and actually is like running them out of town. And uh, so they are in the wilderness, away from Egypt, and that's where our story picks up tonight. We're going to be in chapter 14, and I'm going to kind of bounce around like I have been. Um, so if you're following along, you might be like, oh, why are you skipping that section? Um, but just hang with me. So this is verse, uh, chapter 14, starting at verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them. Come on, and said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. All our slaves are gone. What are we doing? So he and his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt, uh, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the desert to die? What have we, What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. I just want to pause there for one second. These words that Moses just spoke sound really comforting and like, really mature on his part. And they are. But the Hebrew here is a little more, uh, it's got a little more oomph than this translation gives it. The word that he translates here as be still actually means be silent. And Moses is basically saying, shut up. (laughs) Did you guys not see like the 10 plagues? Did you guys not see all of this amazing stuff that has happened so that we are free? And then at the first sign of trouble, you're like, oh, we should have stayed in Egypt. We should have died in Egypt. Guys, shut up is basically what Moses says here. Okay, picking back up, verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong, with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall on the, of water on their right and a wall of water on their left the Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. Pause there for one second. We skipped a section here. God, God is leading Israel through the desert. And during the day, the spirit of God appears as a cloud in front of them. And during the night it appears as a huge column of fire. That's why it says God looked down from the cloud and fire. Otherwise you might be like, what is going on there? Uh, Okay, he threw the Egyptians into confusion and uh, he jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. (laughs) Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. (laughs) Sorry, that is not a funny thing to laugh at, but my son is making hilarious noises right in front of me. Uh, But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians laying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. So what just happened here? The Israelites are leaving Egypt finally. And then it's like everyone in charge is like, how are we going to do anything if we don't have slaves to build everything for us? What were we thinking? We should go get them back. So they chase them. They pin them up against the sea. The people freak out, kind of understandably, kind of not. And then God tells Moses, part the sea <laughs> or, or raise your staff over the sea. And the sea divides. The Israelites are able to walk through it safely. And then once they're through, the sea is pushed back in on itself and they all drown. It's a pretty horrific scene, honestly. Um. And I don't want to get too hung up on, on the violence that is happening here, though it is an important thing to talk about. And, and if you want to talk about any of the violence that we see in the Old Testament, but especially in Exodus, I'm happy to talk with you about that sometime. But for our purposes tonight, <laughs> I'm kind of glossing over it. Uh, otherwise, we'd be here all night. But let's talk about the amazing things that have happened in this scene. This scene is obviously pretty spectacular in its own right, uh, uh, and just at face value, right? This is a miraculous thing that happens. But this scene is so much deeper, like most of this book, if we go below the surface. I, I love, I've been, I've been looking forward to getting to this scene because I love what's happening here. Uh, this scene we just read is trying to tip us off to a bigger picture and a greater truth, uh, and it does this by reaching back and echoing uh, another famous scene from in, earlier in the Bible. In fact, it, it reaches all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis 1. Here in Exodus, we're told that uh, God sends a wind to part the sea. The word for wind here is ruach, and that can mean wind, it can mean breath, it can mean spirit. In Hebrew, it's all kind of the same thing. Keep that in mind. In Genesis, at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The word spirit there is that same word, ruach. That same ruach that split the Red Sea is hovering over the waters here at the moment of creation. And a few verses down, During the second day of creation, God splits the waters of the deep into two. First, the waters below and the waters above to form the sky. And then on the third day, he splits the waters below again to reveal dry land. God splits the waters to provide a means for human life. Okay, so in Genesis, the Ruach of God hovers over the earth and the land is formed or or comes out of the water, uh, comes out from under the waters. In Exodus, the Ruach of God separates the waters again, allowing dry land to appear, giving life to the Israelites. I'm sure you can see the parallels happening here. Keep this in mind again for a second. This is sort of a side story, but kind of not. Uh, I also want to point out something else that's going on here. Not only does this story echo back to that moment of creation, it also alludes back to the story of the flood. In the story of the flood, the waters that were previously separated by God are no longer held back, which causes the flood, uh, killing the evil people, while uh, the people of God are saved with Noah in the ark and all the animals. In Exodus, the waters that were previously separated by God, again, are no longer held back, and the Egyptians are killed while the people of God pass through safely. This ties back into an idea that was planted in our minds way back in chapter two of Exodus. I don't know if you remember, but Noah as a baby is placed into a waterproof basket in the Nile to escape being killed by Pharaoh. That word for basket is the same word in Genesis six that's used for the ark that Noah is in that saves him and his family from the flood, which is meant to help us see that like Noah, Moses is going to be an instrument or or a means through which God's people are saved. And we just saw that come to fruition. Another thing that I think is really cool about this, this isn't important for the main point tonight, but in that scene when Moses is placed into the river, his sister walks alongside the basket until it comes to the princess, the the Pharaoh's daughter. And she's the one who tells Pharaoh's daughter, hey, I know someone that could nurse that baby for you if you want to like give him back for a few months and then you can raise him. What's interesting is Moses' sister has never reappeared. And right after this scene, right after they pass through the Nile, Moses' sister reappears, which is pretty cool. I just think that's cool storytelling. That's just some bonus content I wanted you to see. But for our purposes tonight, we're focusing on uh, the connections back to creation. So we have the scene of Israel being saved from Egypt in this miraculous way that replays and echoes scenes from creation. God's act of salvation for Israel is tied back to God's act of creating the world. The implications here are are that God is saving Israel. God saving Israel is an act of recreation. Or as Pete Enns puts it, to save is to recreate, because to be saved is to start anew. Uh, Pete Enns is an author and a professor of biblical studies who I find massively helpful on a regular basis. Uh, I don't agree with everything Enns says, but I don't agree with everything anyone says, even myself. But I find him to be a great resource. And uh, his book, Exodus for Normal People, which I meant to have up here with me and now do not, but just imagine me holding a book that says Exodus for Normal People on it, and you get the idea. I failed to mention this book in this series, which I apologize for because it's been invaluable. Uh, This series has required a lot of research, but this book has been my starting point pretty much every week. And uh, so if you're interested in Exodus, there's plenty that we're not getting to in this series. You should check out that book. It's really helpful. It's really great. Anyway, salvation is like creation happening again on a smaller scale. To be saved is to be recreated. This idea is confirmed several times throughout the Bible, but most notably over a thousand years later by the Apostle Paul when he writes this in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is saved, the new creation has come The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So we see when we claim Christ as our salvation, we are reconciled to God and that sin that once separated us from him is rendered powerless. That's what Paul is talking about here. We are restored to the original goodness of creation. We are recreated in a spiritual sense. We begin the process of sanctification or becoming more and more like Christ, more and more like the the people God created us to be from the very beginning. There's a fresh start, there's a new beginning. God saves through recreating. So what do you need recreated from? What sins still rule your life? What habits, what anger, what bitterness uh, still seems to control you? What addictions still enslave your heart and your mind? What unhealed wounds still hold you captive? What voice of shame tells you that you need to wear a mask, that you need to hide who you really are from God and others? What do you feel like consistently comes back to recapture you in the desert every time you seem to get away? What do you need recreated from? Jesus offers us freedom from all these things. But we still have to choose it. I'm sure in your struggles with the sins in your life, um, sins done to you and the sins that you've done to others, you've asked God to change you, to, to change your heart, to make you into someone new to recreate you. Uh, I spent countless nights um, pleading with God to change me so that when I woke up, I would no longer be an addict. I would no longer be an angry, bitter person. That I would no longer just continually hurt the people around me no matter what I did. And every morning, I would wake up the same. Which is a uniquely dark place to be, right? And I stayed there. Until I learned this truth, recreation, healing, sanctification isn't something that God just does for us. It's something that he invites us into to actively participate with him. It's impossible without him, but it's also not something that just magically happens. Uh, It's not something that just magically happens without our participation. God is not going to force sanctification on you. he provides the way, salvation, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, but you still have to choose those gifts. I think we see that in our story tonight. One of the things that I was most struck by, like if everything's on the table and uh, 10 plagues can happen and seas can split, God could have just teleported the people out of Egypt into a better situation, right? He certainly could have at least just teleported them across the Red Sea and like skipped over all this other stuff. It would have been just instant saving. Instead, he creates a way, he parts the Red Sea, but Israel still has to choose to walk through it. Why? Why Why doesn't God just snap his fingers and fix everything? I'm not entirely sure. I wish I had a perfect answer for that question. But I think it has something to do with how he designed us, with agency. We're not robots. We're humans with God-given strength and courage and agency that God wants to see developed to its fullness. So sure, he could instantly do everything for us. And we would never grow. You know that if you always carry around a baby... If you pick them up every time they whine, if you bring them what they want every time they, they cry or, or you carry them everywhere they want to go, they will never learn to walk. Or at the very least, the process is severely hindered. God designed you to flourish. He provides the way. You still have to choose to walk through it. Sometimes we need help learning how to do that, right? Right? I needed a counselor to help me learn to choose flourishing, to choose to accept Christ's grace and to learn to apply that to my relationship with God and my relationship with myself and my relationship with other people in my life. And I'm still learning. It's not just something that happens. I'm still participating with God in my sanctification, in my recreation. And I get to join God in the recreation of the world, which again, he could just snap and have it all done, but he lets us be a part of it, which I think is just incredible. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You still have to choose to live into that reality. You still have to choose health. You still have to choose to work with God to heal the effects of of sin in your life through repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. The great news is God has reconciled you to himself You have to choose whether to receive that or not. He's not going to force that on you. And if you do choose to accept it, you still then have to choose to join God in doing the work of reconciling with yourself and with others. That's easier said than done. It's scary. And I think, uh, I'll just speak for me personally, it is some of the most fulfilling experiences of my life. And it sure beats sitting at the edge of a sea begging for salvation and wondering why it never comes. God provides a way, but we still have to walk through. So what's it going to take for you to choose saving, to choose recreation? What's it going to take for you to start walking the dry path through that split sea in front of you? That's what I hope that you will think about this week. Will you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you that our salvation, our restoration isn't on our shoulders. That you make the first move. You come and find us. You provide a way for us to be reconciled to you. And at the same time, God, thank you that you allow us to be a part of that process. I'm sure it would be so much simpler for you to just make everything better. But thank you that you love us enough to learn and struggle and fail. To own the process with you along the way. God, I pray each of us would find a a sense of meaning and purpose and inspiration in that truth. That we get to partner with you in our own recreation. And God, I pray that whatever step we have been uh, avoiding or or not seeing, uh, that you would give us the courage and the discernment and the will to take that first step to learn how to join you in making all things new. God, thank you for this time tonight. And we love you. Amen.